Lord, we, we, we remember that song. We've read the words of that in the story of you riding into Jerusalem, how they all lifted their hands and waved their banners singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet a few days later, those same people are asking for you to be crucified. That's Lord, because we're fickle. And because we say we have faith, but sometimes that faith falters. And sometimes that faith fails. But God, today, as we look at the faith that Daniel had, God, I pray that we will have a faith like his, that never faltered, that was never fickle, that never failed, that cried Hosanna at the start and cried Hosanna all the way through and cried Hosanna right at the end. God, that's the kind of faith that we want. Teach us from your word, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats, everyone? Thank you. Thanks, guys. If you've got a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 6. That would be brilliant. I kind of thought about this because it's the most uh, famous uh, of the Daniel stories and it's kind of hard to... You want to take it out the fallback, Chris? Thanks. It's hard to take it away from a Sunday school story uh, and to try and kind of apply it and make it relevant uh, to us now. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and do that, hopefully. I'm going to go through the story, and as I go through the story, I'm going to step aside for a few moments and tell you a few things that you might not know about the background and about the culture and about the history, just to give you a bit more context. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the question, what on earth has all this got to do with us? Okay, and try and draw out a few principles from that. So if you look at Daniel chapter 6, actually the last verse of Daniel chapter 5 in verse 30 says that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and then Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. We're not quite sure, okay, who Darius the Mede was. It may have been the throne name for Cyrus who was the kind of prince of Persia, okay, that's a movie, isn't it? The emperor, the king of Persia. And uh, we're not sure whether this is Cyrus, just calling himself something different, or whether Cyrus put in place in Babylon a guy called Darius the Mede. But either way, we've moved from under the Babylonian empire to the Persian empire. And as Persia under Cyrus took over Babylon and all of this empire, Persia became the biggest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point in time. There's a major shift in world history here, and Daniel is at the center of it. Now, it says in Daniel 6, verse 1, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Just a little aside, um, Cyrus, okay, the ruler over Persia, we're not sure whether it's Darius or not, but basically the ruler over Persia, was a paranoid man. Apparently his father was so fearful of his own kids one day growing up and usurping him that he had all of his kids killed. And um, Cyrus, who was a little boy, a herdsman was paid to take Cyrus out into the woods and to kill him because his father was so fearful of him. As the, as the, the herdsman took him out, he basically said, I'm not going to do that. And he let the guy go. He let the young boy go. And the boy grew up and became the man who would usurp his father. And the paranoia of this father is translated to the paranoia of all of the rulers at this time. And you can see it. It says in verse 2, so he appoints Daniel and it says the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So he's not interested in the people benefiting from his leadership. What he's interested in is that he wouldn't suffer loss. Some of that is the paranoia that was around leadership in this kind of day in history. Now Daniel is in his mid-80s at this point. 
You don't really pick that up unless you, unless you understand it. He's in his mid-80s. He should be in semi-retirement. But how many of you know there's no such thing as retirement in the kingdom of God? Isn't that right? There's no such thing. Sorry, it just doesn't exist. And Daniel, in semi-retirement, all of a sudden is thrust onto the stage again and his faith is called into question. It says in verse 4, the other advisors, and, the, and you saw it in the drama that, that uh, James did, I won't even go with the voices, basically tried to catch him out. And we don't quite know why. Was it envy? Because Daniel was powerful. Was it ageism? Because Daniel was in his 80s and they were younger. Was it anti-Semitism? Because he was a Jew. We don't know why it was, but whatever reason, they tried to catch him out. But listen to this. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, verse 5, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for people to say over your life and mine? There's nothing I can find to catch this person out unless it's his faith. So his character and his integrity and the way he handles his life is so fantastic that they can't find anything to find fault with him. Wouldn't that be amazing? So they turn to the only thing that they can use to exploit, which is his faith. And then they go and they appeal to the king's ego. And I thought Phil played that part fantastically, didn't he? With the whole ego thing. Great actor. And, um, and they appeal to his ego and they go to him in verse 6. And they say, oh, King Darius, live forever. And they're appealing and they're flattering to his vanity. And then they come up with this idea of, of a decree where everyone in the land only worships the king. In other words, Darius, you can be a god for a month. Not much of a god, but you can be a god for a month. And not only is he, is he vain and egotistical, but he's also stupid. Because in verse 9 it says, so King Darius put the decree in writing. And later he regrets what he's done. But because he's so caught up with his own paranoia and his own ego and his own self-preservation, he puts it in writing. King gets to hear that Daniel, you see Daniel knows about the decree, but Daniel goes to his room as he does every day, three times a day, kneels down, puts the window open, faces towards Jerusalem and prays to his God boldly, courageously and consistently. And the king gets to hear about it and the king is distressed about that because he likes Daniel and he's fearful of Daniel's God because he's heard all the stories under Nebuchadnezzar and under Belshazzar and the fiery furnace and the dreams and, and what happened to the other kings. He hears all that, he knows all of that. He likes Daniel and he's fearful of Daniel's God. But he's bound by his own signature so he throws Daniel into the lion's den. Just another aside here, and this will totally change your life, okay, when you hear this piece of information. You might be thinking, well, in Daniel chapter 3, they threw the guys into fiery furnace. Why don't they do the same? Because we've moved from Babylon to Persia, and the Persians were Zoroastrianists. And someone reminded me this morning that Freddie Mercury was one of those, okay? Zoroastrians, they're still around now. And they basically, their belief system, one of their belief systems is that fire is something to be worshipped and idolised. And to throw someone in fire for them would have been polluting the universe. So they didn't do that. What they did was they threw people into pits and let animals, birds of prey and animals like lions, devour them. Now aren't you glad I've told you that? Doesn't your life feel totally, radically changed by that? But we've moved from Babylon to Persia and there's a shift in the way capital punishment is going on. But the thing that, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego face, that test of faith, is the same kind of test of faith that Daniel faces now, many, many years later. And Darius throws him in, has a tortuous night. It says in verse 18, it says, 
The king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I know it says he didn't eat, but I'm sure he ate chocolate, because nothing's ever that bad, is it, that you can't eat chocolate, do you know what I mean? And he had this tortuous night eating nothing but chocolate, and he wakes up the next morning, and the Bible says he hurried to where Daniel was, and the king never hurries, but he's so tortured and he's so anxious about Daniel and about himself that he hurries along, and there he finds to his amazement Daniel, not only alive, but unharmed. And then as you saw in the drama, the men who tried to catch Daniel out were then thrown into the lion's den themselves. Give you another little aside. Romans 12 verse 9 says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. One of the biggest challenges you and I have in our faith is to let go of the need for revenge. See, every movie these days, every soap opera, revenge is one of the major themes, isn't it? It's one of those themes of conflict and getting our own back and getting revenge for what happened to me or my family or whatever. It's a massive theme in our culture. The Bible says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God. I will repay, says the Lord. One of my um, script, um, Bible teaching heroes is a man called R.T. Kendall. Many of you will have known him. I worked with him for uh, various times in the past and was always very uh, enamored by him as a man and as a teacher and and in his faith. And he tells a lot of stories about how at one point in his ministry at Westminster Chapel in London, he had a lot, a lot of pressure and a lot of accusation and a lot of people hurt him very badly. And one of his mentors at the time nailed him by saying, Artie, you must totally forgive everybody who's ever hurt you. Totally. And he said, uh, but you don't mean totally, totally, you must totally forgive them or you yourself will be a prisoner. And that's a challenge, isn't it? And uh, Daniel didn't take revenge himself, he left room for God and God vindicated him. Daniel is affirmed and God is honoured. Hurrah! What on earth has all that got to do with us? There are some lessons for us as we look at this issue of persecution. And to help set the scene, we're going to go to our thing that we've been using a couple, a few times, which is our deep thoughts from a shallow Christian. It is the sad truth that most Christians will experience some form of persecution for their faith at some point in their life. Although the persecution Christians face today is not nearly as awful as it has been throughout history, it still hurts and it's still unnecessary. But I've figured out a way that Christians can escape persecution. All we have to do is go to church in secret and never tell anyone that we're Christians. After all, if they don't know we're Christians, they won't persecute us. If we all stop inviting people to church and pry the chrome Jesus fish off our bumpers and say Gesundheit when someone sneezes instead of God bless you, then we won't be persecuted and we can live out happy Christian lives in secret. Because avoiding persecution is our first priority as Christians. These have been Deep Thoughts from a Shallow Christian. <laughs> I want to say the first thing is this. Believers live in a continual state of tension. You see, Daniel lived in Babylon, but he was in faith in God. And when we looked at the Ephesians series, we said that Paul said, you are in Christ and you're in Ephesus. Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. In other words, that's tension, isn't it? We're heavenly minded, but we're earthly bound. We're citizens of heaven, but we're citizens of this earth as well. And if there is not tension in your Christian life, I want to suggest something's wrong. 
If there's no tension, something's wrong. There must be tension. I don't mean that we walk around tense all the time and, oh, I'm so tense, you know, in my shoulders. I mean that there's some kind of tension in how you work out your Christian faith. If Babylon is symbolic for the dominant culture of the time, then Daniel understood that to be in God, to be in faith, to be a a follower of God, and to be in Babylon is going to create some amount of tension. And he had to navigate that tension. He had to draw the lines. He had to work out compromise. I was at an event last night and somebody from the church was asking me a question about an ethical dilemma in her workplace. She'd been asked to do this and she thought, I'm not sure what to do as a Christian. And to be honest, it wasn't black and white. How many of you know it's not always black and white, is it? It wasn't black and white. And in the end, I helpfully said, I don't know, and walked off and had a cup of coffee. And she's got to work that out. Because there's tension, and if there's no tension in your faith, something's wrong. And you see, we're called, as believers, to be theocentric, which means God is at the center of our universe. We're not called to be anti-culture. Anti-culture is where Christians say, we want nothing to do with the culture, we're only going to listen to Christian music, only watch Christian television, only go to Christian meetings, only hang around with Christian people, and we're anti-culture. That is not what we're called to do. But neither are we called to be so pro-culture that we ain't any different from anybody else. Our values and our lifestyle is no different from everybody else. We're not called to be anti-culture or pro-culture. We are called to be counter-culture, aren't we? Where we are rooted in the culture, but pointing towards a better way to live. And we affirm good things in our culture at the same time. We say, but do you know what? God calls us to live a different way as well. And Daniel was in that And Daniel lived in that tension. And I want to suggest to you, if there's no tension in your faith, it could be because you've quit. And what we do as Christians is that we either get monastic, where we get all ghettoized and and, and in our own little huddle, or we just blend in and we ain't any different from anybody else. When you pick up something to buy in the shops, if you don't ever think about, should I buy this? Do I need this? Can I afford this? Is this good use of my shit? If you never, ever ask those questions, I want to suggest you've got no tension. But if you do, brilliant. Because asking the questions is an indication that we're living and trying to grapple with the tension. Does it make sense? And believers live in a continual state of tension. That's just the way that it is. It's just the way that it is. Secondly, second lesson is this. The lions are real. We just never told you about them. The lions are real. We just never told you about them. You know, in the early church in the first century, especially in the Roman world, when you became a Christian, within 30 days, you may be in the arena facing lions, literal lions, not metaphorical lions. Listen to this story of Ignatius. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John and had publicly reproved the emperor Trajan Antioch for worshipping idols. However, Trajan swore to take public revenge on Ignatius in return for his embarrassing rebuke. Ignatius was arrested and brought to Rome. As he was led away to the pit of lions, he told another believer, and this is phenomenal, my dear Jesus, my saviour, is so deeply written in my heart that I feel confident that if my heart were to be cut open and chopped into pieces, the name Jesus would be found on every piece. It's phenomenal, isn't it? When the multitude of people were assembled to witness his death, Ignatius boldly addressed the cheering crowd, and he said this, I am the grain of God. I am ground by the teeth of the beast that I may be found a pure bread of Christ who is to me the bread of life. As soon as he'd spoken these words, two hungry lions devoured him. 
He lived up to his surname, Theophorus, which means the bearer of God. To the very end, he bore the name of God and his Saviour on his lips. He'd often said, the crucified Christ is my only and entire love. And to the end, he found solace in this simple truth. As the world hates the Christians, so God loves them. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, and I think about these stories of the past of persecution, real persecution, like I feel a bit guilty, and I also feel inspired. Do you know what I mean? And I feel a bit challenged. And We're going to pause for a moment and just take a look at some quotes from people through history, real people who have lived and who have faced real lions, and whose faith has not failed, even if they've lost their life. stand for a minute. I want us just to pause and just to pray. You know that the truth is that you know that there are more people who've lost their life for their faith in Christ in the last hundred years than all the other centuries put together. And right now as we think about persecution and we try and think how does that apply to us, I want us to pause and just acknowledge that right across the world there are thousands if not millions of believers who are facing real persecution right now just because they're Christians. And the Bible said we should pray for them. So we're going to do that. Is that all right? So just join with me as we pray. Father, we want to thank you, Lord God, for the faith of so many people across this planet, which just is so awesome and inspiring. God, and your word said that we should pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are in chains, those who are being persecuted because they refuse to deny you. And Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters right now. We we don't know them. We we may never, probably will never ever meet them this side of heaven. But God, they are connected to us because of your spirit. And we want to pray for them right now. Come on, folks. Join with me as we pray. Lord, we lift up our voices and we say, Father, would you strengthen them, Lord God, wherever they are. 
Some of them are in prison right now. Some of them are in homes. They're fearful. They're in buildings. They're fearful. Lord, some of them, we don't know where they are. But God, we pray that you would strengthen their faith, that their faith wouldn't fail right now. God, we pray for those who are falsely imprisoned in all parts of our world. We think of areas of the Middle East. We think of Eritrea. We think of other parts of uh, Eastern Africa. We think of all so many other countries where people are falsely imprisoned and, and, and tortured because they are believers in Christ. And we ask for strength to come for them. We ask for release as well, Lord God, for them as well. We ask for their families, that you would strengthen their families. Again, that their faith would not fail. That God, the lions are very real to them. They understand this story so much more than we do. God, I pray that your, your spirit would strengthen them in Jesus' name. And Father, that their faith would be an inspiration to us as well. God, we pray for them today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let you take your seats. You know that the sad truth is this, that the lions are real. But we in the West never told you about them. And especially in this last hundred years, what we've done is we've said, if you want to become a Christian, put your hand up, come to the front, we'll pray for you, get baptized, and then your life will be fantastic. You'll never have any other trouble, okay? Jesus will make you happy, secure, wealthy, healthy, happy. And, and that's what we've done. And we've not told you that following Christ means that there are lions. There are lions. And Jesus did that. The way that Jesus did that was that he got a group of people together and he taught them about the kingdom. And initially in his ministry, it was a great big crowd. But as it went on, he turned around and said, oh, by the way, I need to tell you about some lions. Your family could reject you. In fact, they probably will. That's a lion. Or I could tell you that you need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's a lion. Or actually that people will be out not only to kill your soul, but to kill your body as well. That's a lion. And as he said that great news... Guess what? The crowd thinned out. Isn't that amazing? And over the last hundred or so years, what we've done in the Western church is often given out a gospel of salvation, which is a little bit like that. It's like you come to Christ, everything will be great, and there's no lions. And that's a disservice because I have to tell you, there are lions. There are lions. They are very, very real. And I was looking at the kind of lions that we face, and I was looking for some inspiration. And then I thought, well, today is July the 11th, and you know what July the 11th is? It's World Cup final day. Huh? I know you didn't know that. You haven't known that for weeks, have you? Because we got knocked out. But not everybody's gotten out. And there's an orange shirt over there. Come on, Holland. Go. Any Spanish people here today? Uh, you're not Spanish, Andy. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. And I thought, where's the inspiration? It should have been us tonight, shouldn't it? And here's an England shirt. Because on the England shirt, there are three lions. And as God would have it, amazingly so... There are three lions out to kill us as well. Did you know that? The Bible says there are three lions. It calls the first one the lions around, uh, within us, which the Bible calls the flesh. The second one is the lions around us, which the Bible calls the world. And the third one is the lions beyond us, which the Bible calls the devil. There are three lions. Every attack, every pressure upon our faith comes from one of these three lions. The flesh, the world, or the devil. Let me just explain. The flesh is the lions within us, our habits, our fears, our sins, our pride, our lust, our weaknesses, the sicknesses that we get in our body, the limitations. They all come from within us and they threaten to devour our faith, don't they? They threaten to pull us away from our faith and our trust in God. It's an African proverb that says this, you can outrun that which is running after you, but you cannot outrun that which is running inside of you. It's a lion. 
And if we don't stop and ask God to help us deal with the lions inside of us, eventually they will devour us. They will devour our faith. They will keep us from our faith. There are the lions around us, the world, the Bible calls it, family rejection, misunderstanding, accusation, alienation, consumerism, hedonism, materialism. All these things are threatening to devour our faith. There are the lions beyond us, the Bible calls the devil. In 1 Peter 5 um, verse 8, it says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. (laughs) Looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And I want to say that in my experience, in my understanding, usually the devil will not attack you directly. Usually what he does is he exploits those other two things. He exploits the lions within you and he exploits the lions around you for his own purposes. And Peter says, be alert. The devil, your enemy, is roaring like a roaring lion. He's prowling around looking to devour your faith. Third thing. In order to withstand the lions and remain distinctive, we must guard our connection with God. You see, Daniel was able to withstand the lions and to remain distinctive in Babylon because of his connection to God. Now, if they'd have eaten him, it still would have been the same. He still was able to do that, you understand, because his faith didn't fail. But we must guard our connection to God. And for Daniel, this came through his prayer life three times a day, every day. He orients his life back to God regularly, consistently, and intentionally. Now, here's another aside. Prayer in Judaism is a fascinating thing to study. You see, prayer in Judaism usually takes place with a group of ten men called a minion. You may not know this, but a minion uh, comes from the story of Abraham. When Abraham, uh, when, when God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, if I can find 50 righteous men, do you remember that? And he negotiated with God and they got it down to 10. <laughs> remember that? That's where it comes from. So from then on, in the Jewish faith, there's this idea that prayer only can begin when there's a group of 10 men, a minion. So a synagogue service won't start unless there's a group of 10, a minion. And yet Daniel's here praying alone. The other interesting thing about prayer is that for Jewish men, usually they would pray standing up, but Daniel kneels. And when a man kneels in prayer, that's a sign of extreme distress. Ask me the question, what drives me to my knees? Because for Daniel, it wasn't just his own life. It was what was going on around him. It was what was happening in Jerusalem. It was what was happening to the people. That's what drove him to his knees. And the Bible says that he prayed facing Jerusalem. And again, just to give you the background of that, that comes from Solomon. When Solomon set up the temple in 2 Kings chapter 6, he taught the people to pray facing Jerusalem, not because it was some kind of superstitious thing or geographical thing per se, but he says that's where, that's symbolic of where the manifest presence of God is. And wherever you are in the world, you need to know who you are. And you need to position yourself knowing who you are and looking towards God. So my question is this, where are you facing You see, what was true of Daniel was this, that even though he was in Babylon, he was facing towards Jerusalem, which was symbolic of being faced and fixed towards his faith in God. 
And I want to read a quote to you from uh, some notes that I've been, been looking at. It kind of describes it better than I can. It says this, While Daniel's consistency of life and testimony has been evident throughout the book of Daniel, here we learn the inner secret. In spite the pressures of being a busy executive with many demands upon his time, Daniel retired to his house three times a day to offer his prayers for the peace of Jerusalem as well as for his personal needs. This was not the act of a person courting martyrdom, but the continuation of a faithful ministry in prayer which had characterized his long life. It was this prayer connection with God that safeguarded Daniel from the corrupting influences of Babylonian culture. How many of you would say that you're busy? You're totally telling lies. Because every person that I talk to tells me they're busy, including all of you and me. And we're all busy. But the thing that kept his connection to God, and I tell you what, he was the third most powerful man in the land. He was busy. Is that regularly he oriented his life towards God. He stopped, he paused, he connected, he reminded, he remembered, he fixed himself. Bill Hybels, pastor of a church in America, wrote a book called Too Busy Not to Pray. And I want to suggest that I am too busy not to pray. And so are you, aren't we? And yeah, I don't know about you, but let me be honest. When I'm busy, often my prayer life goes. When I'm busy, my meditation, my scripture reading goes when I'm busy. Anyone, or is it just me? And yet the sad truth is that that's the wrong thing to do. When we're that busy, we have to pray even more. We have to study even more because there's a, there's a lion that's threatening to devour our faith. And we need to stand strong final thing I want to say is this. We must remember that we're not alone. Do you know that there is a brother of Daniel in the New Testament? Did you know that? He has an equivalent in the New Testament. If you turn to the book of Acts chapter 7, and his name is Stephen. You remember the story of Stephen, if you know it. Stephen was um, what's called a deacon uh, in Acts chapter 6, serving in the church. And he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and, and God's hand was on him. But he started to preach about Jesus and Jesus crucified and resurrected. And in Acts chapter 7, uh, the people that were listening to him were so furious. It says in verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious. And listen to this, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Now, interesting. What else gnashes their teeth? Lions. Then it goes on to say this, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed to him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. See, for Stephen, the lions actually got him. Okay, they got him, they killed him. But they didn't get him, did they? Because his faith was strong right to the end. And I think when you look at Stephen, you see if you like the New Testament equivalent of Daniel. And you can learn some lessons from this. Firstly, Stephen wasn't alone neither. See, Daniel, when he was in the lion's den, had that angel that came. But, but, but Stephen said that he looked up and he saw Christ. You know, you and I, we have the presence of Christ with us, don't we? So whatever lions you're facing, whether they be lions from inside or around you, we are not alone. Isn't that good news? Because we have Christ, the presence of Christ with us. And the second thing is that 
Stephen became Christ-like. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to become more Christ-like? I know most of you already are, but how many of you would like to become more Christ-like? Well, let me tell you, let me show you how you can become more Christ-like. Because listen to what happened. Stephen was dragged out of the city. His clothes were ripped off his back. He was killed publicly. And he prayed at the end, forgive them, God, for what they're doing. Does that sound familiar? Who else did that? Christ. And, and here's the thing. In the midst of the lions, we are becoming more and more like Christ. And I, if I said to you, okay, how many of you want to become more like Christ? Yeah. How many of you want persecution? Because that's how you get it. We probably wouldn't be so keen. But the truth is, whenever you are persecuted, whenever the lions roar against you, whenever they gnash their teeth and you stay strong, you are becoming more and more like Christ. Isn't that amazing? He became more like Christ. Suffering of believers is never wasted, ever. James in James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy when you experience sufferings of many kinds, because these things produce in you perseverance and character and hope and all these fantastic Christ-like qualities. The final thing that I want to say is this, and I just love this. In God's economy, the greatest kingdom advances come through suffering. You see, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said to the early disciples, Wait in Jerusalem, receive the Holy Spirit, and then when you get the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so that's, that's the command of Jesus. You're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem where you live, in Judea which is next to you, in Samaria which is just beyond, and to the ends of the earth. By Acts chapter 7, they're still stuck in Jerusalem. Amazing, they're still stuck in Jerusalem, even though Jesus commanded them to go. Listen to chapter 8. Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout, where? Judea and Samaria. Isn't that amazing? Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. But as he began to destroy the church, see this is the thing. What the command of Jesus failed to do, persecution did. Isn't it? Because Jesus said, go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. But they were stuck. And it wasn't until the lions gnashed their teeth that actually they woke up from their slumber and they were pushed out through persecution and the church spread throughout the world. And I want to say to you as we finish this morning, whenever you experience difficulties, and I know some of you in this room are experiencing incredible difficulties. We have no way of even being able to understand or explain. You, you are having incredible pressures. The lions are really gnashing their teeth. Some of you, it's for you personally. Some of you, it's for your family and for your friends and for your loved ones. And, and at work, I know many of you are experiencing tough times at work right now. And, and every time you go to work, it sounds like people are gnashing their teeth at you. I understand that as much as I can. But I want you to know this. Whenever we experience difficulties, God's kingdom can be extended through that. And actually, if you look in history, it's often true that the greatest kingdom advances come through those times of suffering and persecution. It was true in Jesus' life. It's true of the early church. It was true here. It's true in world revivals. It's true in your life. And it's true in mine. Some of the greatest kingdom advances come when we stand in the midst of the lions. And we refuse to bow our knee. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And we're going to finish... And in one sense, I thought, okay, this is like so similar to two weeks ago when I did the, the fiery furnace. And, you know, again, that was standing up for your faith. And, you know, what can I say different? And in one sense, I can't say much different because do you know what? 
that challenge of standing up for your faith that happened for these guys in their 20s now happens for Daniel in his 80s. And the good news is, that's the way it is. That whenever you think you've got one thing sorted out, remember, that's probably the thing that's going to come back and that you'll have to face again. Isn't that right? And some of you who are older in faith, you know what I'm talking about. You faced the tests of faith in your 20s and you stood strong. Listen, you've still got to stand strong in your 60s and your 70s and your 80s. Because as we do that, we point towards Christ, we become more Christ-like and the kingdom of God advances and that's what we're about, isn't it? isn't about our safety, our comfort, our needs and all that. It's about the glory and the kingdom of God and that's what Daniel lived for. You know, as we finish, I want to, you know, it says in the Bible, you know, Jesus is pictured as a lamb, but he's also pictured as a lion, isn't he? And I wonder sometimes whether us as believers, we forget that inside of us, we have the lion and the lamb. And sometimes as Christians, there's too much lamb and there's not enough lion. Do you know what I'm saying? And sometimes we need to let the lion inside of us roar a little bit more. You know my story of when I was in Africa and saw that wounded lion, some of you will know that. That male lion, the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen, just as far as I'm from here to Clare, with this male lion on the road, with its hand, just his poor hand, his poor ripped, that's my hand, his poor ripped open with blood. And I looked at it and, and said to, to, to the person that was, uh, you know, the, 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 guard, the ranger, oh, it's so sad. And I said, what would happen if we went and stroked it? More stupid. And she said, it would rip you apart like that. I said, it doesn't look like it could hurt anybody. And then as the sun began to set, this is, I mean, it sounds like a movie. As the sun set, it opened its mouth and it roared. And it is the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. Literally, the jeep shook, everything shook. And I just looked at this wounded lion that could still roar. And it was like God spoke to me and said, even a wounded lion can roar. And some of us, we're wounded, we're wounded, but we can still roar. And inside of us is a lamb and a lion. And it's time that some of us let that lion out. Have you ever seen the, um, if you've seen the new Robin Hood film, you've seen that there's a phrase in that film where Robin Hood, it's one of those Hollywood get them going lines and it's, and it's written on a sword and on a funeral, uh, on a tombstone and it says, rise and rise again until lambs become lions. And I wonder if some of us as believers, we need to say, come on, there's a lion inside of me as well as a lamb, let that lion roar. And we stand in the face of those lions that roar against us and we say, we serve the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is our God and our King. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand. Father, we want to thank you today that you are an awesome God. We thank you, God, that, Lord, we serve you. We serve you in Babylon. We serve you in the culture. We want to be counterculture. We want to be pointing towards a better way, a different way. God, we want to affirm what we can affirm. We want to stand against what we need to stand against. We want to point towards what we need to point towards. And God, we want our faith not to fail, but to stand. And God, I pray right now, if there's people here who, who, are, who, who are hearing the gnashing of teeth at work or in their own personal life or in their family life, God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would strengthen them in Jesus' name. Let the lion, let the lion rise again in them. Let them roar again with the roar of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, when that gnashing threatens to get closer and closer and pushes down, God, I pray that we would stand up. Stand up in the name and the power of Jesus. And that we would serve you. That we would honour you. And that we would live for you. And that we would point people towards you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to finish by singing um, a really, really, really old hymn. It's so old that there's only Iris and me, I think, that know it upon the stage here. And Dan, actually. Okay. But I want to I use this song because I, I want to read something to you. This is a true story connected to this song. And it just, for me, and I know we don't do old hymns very often, but sometimes we need to do it to remind ourselves that we have a faith that has a legacy, don't we? And a past, you know, a history rather. And we're connected to that history. And this is a story connected to this hymn. A missionary to India named E.P. Scott learned of a wild mountain tribe that had never heard about Jesus. Since they'd never been presented with the gospel of Christ, he decided to visit that tribe. When he reached their mountain home, he discovered a group of the men on a war expedition. They took him back to the camp and they threatened to kill him. He closed his eyes and he had a violin that he always carried with him and he started playing this hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name on the violin. The natives were so overcome that they dropped their spears and they invited him to stay with them. He lived among them for over two years and many of them in the village were converted to Christianity. And I just had this kind of impression of this guy on this, do you know what I mean, fiddle playing or hail the power of Jesus' name with these spears over him thinking, wow, the lions were real for him, weren't they? The lions were real. And you know, hundreds and thousands of other believers have sung this song that we're about to sing now. And they've also had real lions as well. Maybe not spears, maybe not prisons, but other real enemies that have threatened to devour their faith and they've stood strong challenge folks is that in 2010 here is there a group of people who are going to face their lions and stand strong for him I hope so and I hope I'm one of them as well so why don't we lift our voices if you know this please help us out on stage okay and let's sing this great old hymn and remind ourselves that his is the name above every other name thanks guys